First Peter chapter two. How am I doing on sound? Can everyone hear me? Okay, sounds good. If you need it up, you just tap those guys back there and tell them to do that. Back in 1888, there was a man, a young man named G. Campbell Morgan, and he went through his seminary training, and he was wanting to go into the ministry, and so he uh, was going to apply and then do his doctrinal examinations and then have a trial sermon. So he applied, and he passed all his examinations, and then he had a sermon he was supposed to preach in front of three pastors and an empty auditorium. It ended up about 75 people came into this large auditorium, and he preached a message, and he utterly failed it. Stumbled through it, didn't do very well at all, and when it came time for them to post up the names of the men who were going to have placement in different ministries, he went to the board, looked for his name, and he saw he was on the list of rejected men. He was not going to be placed in a ministry, and so he was very dejected because of this. He went to his journal and wrote in his journal, very dark, everything seems so dark. God knows what is best. And he wired his father. So the 1800s, this is how they had their texting for those of you young people. You had to pay for each letter. So he texted his father the word rejected. And his father replied back in a, in a wire, rejected on earth, accepted in heaven and what wonderful wisdom from his father and that sometimes on earth we're rejected by people but God if you're a child of God God receives you because of Jesus Christ and though people and maybe even family or those close to you reject you and put you to shame as a child of God you're accepted and given the honor of Christ not because of yourself but because of Christ Today we're going to talk about the honor that God gives us in Christ, given by Christ. So we're looking at life from God's perspective. If you remember last week we started, I'm going to have to juggle papers, hope you're okay with that. Last week we started the series, God's House of Worship, and it will go until next week. We studied verses 4 and 5 where we, where we saw that God is uh, creating, he's, he's building, I should say, building a house, a temple, a spiritual temple to worship Christ. And then we're going to study this week, if you look down in our text here, verses 6 and six through 8. And these next three verses are actually the biblical support for the uh, first two verses there, verse 4 and 5 of this, of this passage. And so in order to understand verses 6 through 8, you've got to remember the point of the text last week. So I'm assuming you were here last week. And if you weren't, I'm going to go ahead and give you the point of what we talked about last week. And in general, verses 4 and 5 talked about that we are to worship Jesus Christ. So he is the one, the Lord that we worship. We're to worship him. And Jesus is pictured in that text as a cornerstone, which means he's the reference point for all truth. And so we should look to Jesus, place our faith in him as the starting place and foundation for our life, our spiritual life. Verse 5 describes us as these spiritual stones that are built up into this holy temple for the purpose of us worshiping Christ. And if you look in verse 5, it talks about that we are coming to him as priests offering spiritual sacrifices. 
Remember we said a, a spiritual sacrifice is something that God has given you that is valuable. So something God has given you and then you give it back to Christ in worship and thanksgiving. And we said our worship is, is different than the worship of this world because they're trying to earn something from God or they're trying to gain some kind of acceptance from God. But if you look down there at the end of verse uh, verse five, you can see that we're offering spiritual sacrifices. And what's the next word? Acceptable to God through Christ. And so the point of last week's message that God, Jesus Christ is building a spiritual temple that's us right here so that we can worship Jesus Christ and we are to offer spiritual sacrifices and we can be confident that they are accepted before God. In other words, our life of worship, the, the songs we just sang, the, the prayers we just prayed together, the week we just lived this, this past week, if you gave in the offering to the offerings you give, we can all be 100% certain that God was pleased with those. He accepted those, not because of ourself, but because of Christ. And so the, the contrast here you see is between those who worship Jesus Christ, and I think everyone else in this world that worships something else. And I said this last week, all of us are created to be worshipers. We're created to be worshipers of God, but if we don't worship the one true God through Christ Jesus, we worship other things. And what you see in our world, what you see with worship, is people are trying to gain acceptance from something, someone, particularly a God. For instance, Catholics go to Mass, and many of them go to Mass hoping a priest can give them some kind of grace that will make them acceptable to God. Many Muslims pray five times a day and try to follow the pillars of Islam, and, and the idea is they don't want to be rejected by Allah, and so they're trying to be accepted by him. So they live in fear of him, so they do these certain things to be accepted by him. Many Eastern religions seek to earn favor and honor from their ancestors, so they offer sacrifices to their ancestors, or they do certain things. They don't want to bring any shame upon their, their family that's living and even their ancestors that are already dead, and so they want to be accepted by them. I think even in our secular culture, you see this idea of wanting to be accepted. Our society has ideas and certain taglines, and if you put those taglines up on your Facebook page or your Twitter page or whatever it is, or you wear a t-shirt that says three different words, you know, Anna, you know what I'm talking about. If you have certain beliefs and values of the world, then you're accepted. And if you don't have those values and beliefs, then you're rejected. And so people want to be accepted, right? And so they try to figure out how can I be accepted? And there's a sense even in our culture, even in our society, people are wanting to have this acceptance. And so they live in some sense their lives trying to be redeemed back into the acceptance of the society. You could say it like this, their God is the culture, is the society. Ultimately, the God, their God is themselves. So they want to be accepted. And so intrinsic to every society is this idea that we want to be accepted and therefore we live our life trying to gain that acceptance into that community that we're living within. And again, I think that in our American culture, it's a, it's a lot different than if you look at some other maybe more tribal type of cultures or if you look at a culture that's maybe like more Eastern, that that's more family-based. They, they think more along the lines of being uh, honored within their little system. 
I think about um, World War II and the Japanese and the American men, these young American men are going over and fighting the Japanese and particularly you think of like one place like Saipan and the Americans were winning. Clearly they won. Everyone should surrender. But instead the Japanese went headlong into uh, the battle and basically committed suicide. In fact, there were some islands they would go on to, the Americans would go on to, they'd conquer the island, and people would take their children, and they'd jump off the cliff. And the idea is they, they wanted to be accepted by their country, their emperor, their god, and also their ancestors, and they couldn't face the shame of, of, of that, of, 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 being, of surrendering and losing, if you could say it that way. But as born-again believers, we're confident in Jesus Christ that we have God's favor. We don't worship this morning. We don't live our life hoping that God will like us more next week than he does this week. We are assured that because of Jesus Christ that we are saved by grace. In other words, we have God's favor through faith, and it's not of ourselves. And so I think at the end of verse 5 here, you see this idea that we can be confident that God accepts our spiritual worship through Christ Jesus. And then he says in verses 6 through 9, he gives supporting uh, Old Testament passages that help us to understand this reality for us. And I think the main idea of these three verses is this. And so if you want to write this down, you can. This is basically my outline this morning. It's two points. The main idea is this. Point number one, Christ worshipers are honored because they believe Christ was rejected for them. So if you have a pen, you want to write this down, you can do that. First point is Christ worshipers are honored because they believe Christ was rejected for them in their place. And the second point we'll look at at the very end is fleshly worshipers, fleshly worshipers will be ashamed because they reject the word of God. So fleshly worshipers will be ashamed because they reject the word of God. So let's do this. Let's read our text. First Peter chapter two, verses three through eight. You can follow along as I read out loud. First Peter chapter two, verse three says. Verse four says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. Let's pray. This is the word of God, Lord. We believe it in, our, in the depths of our soul. We want to listen to it because we believe these are the words of life. So speak to us today. Lord, speak to us through the word of God. Holy Spirit, help us to understand and to obey. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
So my first point is Christ worshipers are honored because they believe Christ was rejected for them. Verse 5, Peter describes Christ as the cornerstone and a spiritual temple, uh, as us as a spiritual temple who are, are built up to worship Christ. And then you see this, these footnotes that help us to understand this. So look at verse 6. He says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone. And this morning we read Isaiah 28. And this, this verse right here is a quote from Isaiah chapter 28. This was written 700 years. Isaiah was written 700 years before Christ. And at that time there was still Jerusalem standing. The temple, will, the temple was still standing. So as you read through this text in Isaiah 28, what you see is this idea that God is going to build a new temple. Now, how does that make sense when you have a temple that's already there? And so I'm certain that people, when they read that at the time, the Jewish people might have been a little offended that God's going to build a new temple. Why would that be the case? But then eventually, when the temple was destroyed in, in 587 B.C., I think probably this was an encouragement. But look down in verse number six. You can see, behold, introduces this proclamation like listen up israel behold i am laying in zion a stone so zion speaks of jerusalem but particularly zion refers to the the location of the temple so as you casually read this you see a promise that there's going to be this temple built and then it transitions he says i'm laying in zion a stone a cornerstone chosen and precious and then whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So you see this transition from talking about a physical structure to actually speaking of the physical structure and the stone particularly being a person. And of course, we know that this is a reference to Jesus, the cornerstone, the Messiah. And remember what we said last week a cornerstone was. We said it's a large stone and it had been the first stone that was placed down before you built a building. It would have to be really a perfect stone so you could square up the building to it so that you could plumb up the building to it so that everything would be perfect and every other stone would line up would reference this cornerstone so this is a prediction that god has this perfect stone or this perfect person and all of us need to line up our life and our beliefs to him and that perfect person is jesus christ the messiah and he's creating, he will create people who will worship him, and they will be true, genuine worshipers before the Lord, and their worship will be accepted by God. Remember, these priests go into the temple, they offer sacrifices, and they're hoping that their sacrifices will be acceptable to God. But Christ has built a temple of people, and we are confident that every sacrifice we give is acceptable to God. Well, how does a person... How, do they, how are they able to offer acceptable sacrifices to God? Well, look at verse 6. He says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So it's through belief in Jesus Christ. It's believing that, that Jesus Christ is the chosen one, precious, valuable in God's eyes, and we should line up our faith and our beliefs to him. It's saying he's the Lord He's a savior, and my life and my, my beliefs need to be lined up according to him. 
And then notice when you believe in him, the result. Look at verse 6, the very end. You will not be put to shame. And then verse 7 is the positive. So the honor is for you who believe. So you won't be ashamed before God at the end of your life, but you will be honored before the Lord. What is the word shame? We don't use that word very much in our society. Sometimes we do. It's not really one that's often used. Shame has the idea, it carries the idea that it's down-faced. It's kind of the, the picture of the word shame. It's down-faced, the idea that you're rejected by those who, whose opinions matter, and so therefore you are, you are, uh, you are ashamed. You're, you're down-faced. You, you feel the rejection of them. I feel like this is probably what most of us, many, go through in junior high, right? The, the pressure from people and the constant idea that people are, are constantly putting you down. Hopefully this isn't the case for the kids that are here. But it's kind of the idea that you, there's a group of people who reject you and shame you. Again, like I said earlier, I think our society, the Western mindset, the, probably doesn't get this as much as some other different societies, especially Eastern societies. But, but we all have it to some extent. We understand that, there's, that we want to be accepted and that there are groups of people that we want, to be, we want to fit within. We want them to like us, if you want to say it that way. And then we feel, when we don't fit in, we feel the shame of that put upon us. And shame is a powerful motivator. It's a powerful motivator, and especially in some of these more Eastern societies. I was reading about a girl who lives in Pakistan, and she was in a Muslim family, um, and she became a Christian. And after she became a Christian, her father and her brother went out and slit her throat and killed her. And they did it because since she became a Christian, she was putting shame upon their family. Therefore, she had to be eliminated. They had to eliminate the shame. And the idea was is that this girl was rejected now by their family. So shame has the idea that you're rejected by those whose opinions matter. Well, whose opinion matters more than anyone else's in the world? God's opinion, right? The Lord's opinion matters more than anyone else. And so here the context is talking about that we will not be ashamed before the Lord. So when we stand before the Lord, we will not be put to shame. We will not be rejected by the Lord because of our sin. I think about the beginning of creation when God had this this perfect garden that was a, a place of acceptance for Adam and Eve, a place of protection for Adam and Eve, a purity. Then they reject God. And then God comes down in the form of a person or somehow some presence there. And he speaks to them. And what do they do when they recognize that God's in their presence? They hide themselves because they were naked and they were ashamed. They knew they were naked. They knew they were ashamed. And that, that nakedness was a picture that they were exposed and they couldn't hide it from, from God. They couldn't hide their nakedness. They couldn't hide their sin. And so, therefore, they were rejected. And what happened to Adam and Eve? They were kicked out of God's presence, out of his garden. They were, if you can say this way, they were ashamed. They were rejected. And I think this is probably a good time where you take a pause and you say, friends, if you're not a believer, if you're listening or if you're in here, there will be a day when all of us will stand before the Lord. And our sin will be evident. You might be able to hide your sin now and keep it a secret from most people around you. But there will be a day when your sin will be evident before everyone else. 
particularly before God. You will not be able to hide your sin before God. And because of your sin, you will be ashamed. You'll be rejected. Unless, of course, you have the covering of the blood of Jesus Christ for your sins. So Peter takes this idea of shame and teaches that those who believe in Jesus, those who place their faith in Jesus Christ will never be rejected by God. They are saved. They're born again. So the world may shame you. Your family may shame you. and People might reject you. But God will not. And so you think about the text in Romans where he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. So if your family or your friends reject you because you're a Christian, they might try to shame you for that because you're a weirdo, because you're a Christian. And so so the gospel might be something you might be tempted to be ashamed of. But we're not ashamed of the gospel of Christ because it's the power of God into salvation for everyone who believes. And so 1 Peter 2, 6 teaches that if you believe in Jesus Christ, you will not be put to shame before the Lord. That's possible because Jesus took the shame for you. He's the chosen and precious stone that should have been accepted and honored by the people of the Jewish people when he came to this earth and frankly all of his creation. They should have recognized his position of authority and power but instead, they rejected him, and he was ashamed. He, held, he was hung naked on a cross. He took our sins upon himself. He bore our shame on the cross. And then he was resurrected to a place of honor, to a place at the right hand of the Father. So he took our shame so he could give us his honor. And that's what it, look down in verse 7. That's what you see in verse 7. So the honor is for you who believe. Now, how many of you have, well, you don't have to raise your hand, but just think of it in your head. How many of you have an ESV? And then how many have something else? If you have an ESV, I'm just going to tell you, your translation's correct. If you don't have an ESV, it's probably not correct, okay? I could go into a 10-minute discussion on why I believe that's true, but I'll just say this. Every commentary I could find that was an expositional commentary says that the ESV translation's right and the other ones aren't. Okay? So if you have a translation that says the honor is for you who believe, I believe that's the correct translation. And almost every commentator, in fact, I couldn't find a commentator that disagreed with that. So, so there you go. Why do those other translations do it? You can ask me afterwards. But my point is, it's going back to this idea of just teaching this text here from the translation that's given to us by the ESV translators. So the honor is for you who believe. So what's the idea of honor? Well, honor is recognizing someone's proper position and giving weight to that and therefore showing respect to that position. The Hebrew word for honor actually means to give weight to something. So it's kind of like back in the ancient times when they wanted to figure out how much you should pay for something, they would weigh something. They had to have a scale. Remember the ancient scales? You have the standard of weight on one side, and you have your product on the other side. In fact, I made a little scale over here so you can kind of see this. I'll come back to you guys in the video. Don't worry. But I made a little scale here. In fact, I'll just bring it out here. Here we go. That way people on TV can see us. So if you remember this idea of a scale is you put your, your standard of weight on one side, and then you put your product on the other side. And therefore, you pay according to how much it's, it's worth, right, the value of that 
product. And so, for instance, you might have you might have gold on one side. Maybe you found some gold nuggets or whatever. Then you have your standard of weight on the other side, and they weigh that. And then you say, okay, I, I get the money, or maybe you're going to buy it, so you buy the gold. So you pay the money, pay the value of what that product is. So you're you're giving weight to something. You could say it that way. So the picture of honor is that on on one side you have the you have the standard of the position. Here's the position. The other side you have the person, and you are to pay respect to that person according to that position. Does that make sense? So if this is the if this is the position, this is the person that this is the standard. This is the person, and you're to pay. You're to respect that person accord that person according to the position. In other words, there should be a balance there in that. that that's the, the idea of honor. It's giving respect to the person who does, has a certain position. So, for instance, let's give an example. You, uh, you have parents, right? You all have parents, and we're to honor our father and mother, the Bible says. And that, those are real people that God has given to us. So God has given particular people for us to, that we are to honor. So we pay, if you want to say that, our respects to our parents according to the position, right? It's not that our parents deserve it. It's not that they deserve to have that given to them. I mean, they might do some really nice things for you, but it's not why you pay that to them. It's because God has given them this position. We honor our government. So this is the government position. This is the person. This is Governor Newsom. This is Donald Trump. And we show honor to those people because God has put them in that position. That's right. So it's important for us to understand the idea of what honor is because here what we find is that Jesus is the one that deserves to be honored, but actually he's the one that's put to shame. And we are the ones that deserve to be shamed, but we are the ones that he is honoring. Just, just an amazing idea to think about. And the Greek word has the, the same idea. So in our text, who receives the honor? Well, it should have been Jesus. When Jesus came, all those religious leaders, all the creatures on earth, those, the, the creatures God created to worship him, they all should have bowed before him. They should have recognized his position. He's Lord, he's Savior, and they therefore should have recognized that about Jesus and paid worship to him, if you want to say it that way. Given him worship, honored him in that way. But instead, they, re, they rejected him as that person who held the position. So what's interesting to see is here, look at verse 7, we are the ones who are honored. But wait, that doesn't make any sense, does it? Because we're sinners. So shouldn't God treat us according to that? If we're sinners and we're the person, how should God pay us for that? We should be judged for that, right? We should be condemned. We should be ashamed before him, rejected by him. But instead he honors us, which means this. That God, therefore, has granted a position to us, and he treats us according to that position. So if this is us, and this is the position, he pays us according to that position. Not because we deserve it, but that's the idea of honor. He pays us according to the position he's given to us. Now, here's the question. What position has God put us in? Well, we're not going to talk about it this week, but look down in verses 8 and 9. You can see that. What does verse 8 and 9 say? Or I'm sorry, verses 9 and 10 say? But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. In other words, 
God treats us according to the position that we are his chosen people, that we're his priests before him. Therefore, any worship we, we offer to him is accepted by him, not because of us as the person, but because of the position that he's placed us in. Therefore, he honors us in that way. I read a story, and I couldn't find it on the Internet last night, but I read a story once about a father who ran a marathon with his son, and the son was in a wheelchair, and so the father ran and pushed his son the entire 26-plus miles of this marathon. And at the very end of the marathon, they finished it, and I don't think it was right after, but at some point they got a medallion, and the father put it over his son. Here's a, here's a son who did nothing in the race except sit there and be pushed, but he received the honor that his father earned for him. And I think that's the picture we see here. We, haven't deserve, we don't deserve the honor, but God gifts it to us. He grants it to us in Jesus Christ. And so the honor there is found, I think, in verses 9 through 11. We'll talk about that next week. So Christ's worshipers are honored because they believe Christ was rejected for them. And then we'll finish up quickly here at the last point. Fleshly worshipers are ashamed because they reject the word. So that's our last point. If you want to write that down, fleshly worshipers are ashamed because they reject the word. Now, quickly, why do I say fleshly worshipers? Well, I think he's doing a, a contrast here between those who worship Christ. If you look down at verse 11, you can see those who follow the passions of their own heart, their own lusts of their own heart. And there's a sense that every person, again, worships something, and probably the ultimate God we worship is ourselves. And when we follow our own heart, our own lusts, our own desires, we are following the worship of self, which is probably the most prominent God in America right now, is, the, is, is self. And if your heart and your desires rule your life, then you are a self-worshipper. And so I say fleshly worship because worship has the idea here of fleshly, I should say fleshly worship has the idea that what we do is we do it for ourselves, we do it in our own strength, and therefore it's fleshly. So fleshly worshipers will be ashamed. Why? Because they reject the word. So look at verse 7. He says, the honor is for you who believe. Then he transitions to those who don't believe, those who, who really have followed the worship of self. But for those who do not believe, then he quotes Psalm 118.22, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was a, a verse that Jesus quoted and referenced it to himself in the last week of the Passion Week. And then, verse 8, a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. This is a quote from Isaiah 8.14 that predicts that the same Messiah that came to save is the same Messiah that will come to judge. And I don't have time to read it, but it's a good text to read. It's interesting to see this, again, this picture that he is building a temple and that there's going to be a stone that's chosen as the cornerstone. And that same stone is actually going to be a stone that crushes people. So you just imagine this large stone that they would place for a large building as a cornerstone. Those who line their life up to that stone they will be saved. They, those who line their lives up to Jesus Christ will have a firm foundation for their life. But that same stone is also a stone that crushes them, that brings judgment upon them. And so that's the picture that he wanted the Jewish people to get. And why would those people face judgment? Look at verse 8. Why does he say 
those people will face judgment. They stumble because why? They disobey the word as they were destined to do. So they face judgment. Why? Because they disobey the word of God. And look at the last line of verse 8. What does that mean? As they were destined to do. Some people look at this text and they say, oh, God chooses certain people to go to hell. I don't believe that's actually what it's teaching. I believe what it's actually teaching is that the destiny of those who disobey the word of God is hell. There's a big difference. God created hell to punish Satan and the angels, not for humans. But when humanity rejected God, the natural consequence for rejecting God is punishment. And punishment separate is punishment as separation from him forever. And so a person who disobeys the word of God is a person who will be destined for that doom. I was reading in Jeremiah this past month in my devotions, and I read a, a passage that kind of, I guess, pounded my mind over and over again. I don't know if you've ever had a text like that, that you just kind of can't get, get out of your mind. And it was Jeremiah 14, 18. And actually, as I just thought more about this text, I thought this is the text Something like this is what is going to be screamed out in hell. Jeremiah 14, 18 says, Your ways and your deeds have brought this upon you, speaking of the judgment of God. This is your doom. It is bitter. It has reached your very heart. And I'm just, I was thinking about that, meditating on that verse, and I was thinking, as God comes to the Jewish people and says, you're going to be judged for your sin, what does he say the reason is? Your ways your deeds have brought this upon you and honestly i was thinking what is the thought of people in hell as they scream out i really think it's probably this right here it's the idea my ways and my deeds my life brought this upon me so the reason why a person is separated and 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 has the doom of hell is because of their rejection of god and particularly here, he says they disobey the word. And what does that mean? Well, I think it means that they disobey the call to repent and believe the gospel. And notice something I think it's noteworthy here. The reason a person is doomed is because they live a life of unbelief. They continually unbelieve. And the reason a person is saved, the reason a person is, has the honor, is because they live a life of belief. So look down in verse 7. The honor is for you who believe. That's present tense. But for those who do not believe, that's present tense too. And the idea here is it's continued faith. Sometimes I think in churches like this, not like, I'm not saying this church has ever taught this, but sometimes in churches like ours, people can get the idea that if you just pray a prayer, then therefore you're saved the rest of your life. Or if you did something when you were a kid, you're saved the rest of your life. But I want to be clear to you, especially you children and youth out there, I want you to be clear to you that actually it's not about just something you wrote in your Bible once when you were a little kid. And if you're an adult, if, you th- if you've been thinking that way your whole life, it's actually a daily life of belief. You're not saved by faith that happened one time or a couple times. You're saved by the daily faith in the Lord. That's what he's saying here. The honor is for those who keep believing. So the question is, what do you believe right now? What's, what do you believe right now? In other words, do you live a daily life of turning from your sin and believing in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior? And if you don't live that life, you actually should probably fear this verse of verse 7. For those who do not believe, 
You're destined for doom, separation from God. And so I, I, I want to be clear to you, if anyone's ever given you the assurance that you said some words, or if anyone's ever said to you, as long as you wrote in your Bible or you can remember the date, and you don't live a life of belief, I want you to let you know, like, you have false hope right now. Your hope should be in Jesus Christ, and it's something you live on a daily basis. You should recognize your sin on a daily basis. You should turn from your sin on a daily basis. You should trust in Jesus as your Savior on a daily basis, trusting that he continues to forgive you. So I use this illustration sometimes to help people understand it, and that is that a lot of people like to run and exercise, and so you have all the, the gadgets and gizmos you have the community for running. You know, you have the, the Fitbit or even what I'm wearing. Oh, it actually just said start your workout. Isn't that great how it did that? Yeah. And guess the last time I started my workout? It was a law. Well, I don't know. I probably shouldn't even say it. It was a long time ago. Let's put it that way. And so someone can get a Fitbit, and they can get the shoes. They can get the running shorts. They can get all geared up for it, right? They can even be a part of the texting group. They can even maybe go running once every two years, right? But does that make you a runner? I mean, if I, if I had all that, that, the gizmos on and all that, and I was going around, I was like, yeah, I'm a runner. And I'm not even talking about the glory days. 20 years ago when I was in college and I played soccer and I ran. Of course, they made me run and I hated it. But I ran in soccer you know, 20 years ago. I'm a runner. Am I a runner? You're not a runner unless you run. <laughs> it's that simple. If you're running on a regular basis, and that's, that's a part of your constant part of your life, then you're a runner. If you have all the gizmos and you're part of the groups and you don't ever run, i got news for you, you're not a runner. And, and the same thing is true of faith in Christ. If you, if you can come to church all you want to, you can, you can dress up, you can have your Bible, you can do whatever you want to do to look like a Christian, but if you and your heart aren't living a life of belief, then you probably should step back and ask yourself, am I truly a Christian? And so I really think it's an important point that we should think about. So those who live a life of belief will stand before the Lord. They will not be put to shame, but they will receive, and they have the honor of Christ gifted to them. So let's finish. It's just talking about how do we apply this. I think the first question we need to ask when we look at applying this is, what do you believe? So what do you think about this past week? So think about yesterday, Friday, Thursday, every, this past week. Did you live a life of faith this past week? So I'm talking to the children right now. When you disobeyed your parents, did you recognize you sinned against your parents and against God? And did you, did, you, did you go, I need to go to the Lord and seek the cleansing that Christ provides? So if, and if you're a teenager and you had an attitude or maybe you did something behind your parents' back, they don't know about it, did you come and confess that to them? Do you want to live in openness and in victory over your sin? Did you look to Christ and say, Christ, I need your cleansing? You know, if you're an adult in here and you're, you're maybe doing something at work that was not um, right, maybe you did something behind your boss's back, or maybe there's like you're cutting corners on something, and did, did you feel bad about that? Did you seek to make that right? In other words, do you really believe the gospel of Jesus Christ? And second, I think the question I'd ask you to, is this. Do you live, as a Christian, do you live your life recognizing that Jesus took the shame for you? and therefore you live a life that worships him. I mean, again, the whole context here is that we are created to be worshipers of Christ. There should be this constant idea in our mind, a thought in our mind, that Jesus, he has done so much for me, 
He gave up his life for me. I should give my life to him. And so do you live your life in worship every day considering that idea that I resolve to worship Christ in my heart because he's done so much for me? And then last, I would say this. We need to remember as Christians that we are honored by Christ, not because of ourselves. It's a gift God has given to us. But sometimes we can be very negative about ourselves. We can look at our past. We can look at things that happened in our past. And we can therefore draw conclusions about who God thinks we are in our present. But we actually need to go and see how Christ or how God views us in Christ. And so I would just encourage you this week, if you struggle with those negative thoughts of the past, to go to those next few verses and meditate on that. And meditate, who are you in Christ? What's, what's the position that that God has granted you in Christ. So here you are. How does God therefore treat you? So let's meditate on that this week and recognize that Christ has given us a great gift. He's honored us as his chosen, blessed children who can worship him. And our worship is accepted. Let's pray. Would you bow your heads with me as we go to the Lord in prayer? And again, let me encourage you, if you're in here or you're online, I should say if you're out here and if you're online and you're without Christ, I encourage you in your heart right now to cry out to him. And it could be at home. You maybe need to go to a room by yourself. Maybe you're here right now and you're really wrestling with the Lord right now. What I would encourage you to do is right now cry out to the Lord. You might say, I just need to go somewhere. Then when I pray, maybe just exit out the back or find a room and go somewhere and, and pray to the Lord. And then I ask us as Christians, let's gather together in prayer right now and ask God to help us apply this text to our life this week. So would you pray with me in your heart as I pray aloud? Father, we're so thankful for the reality, the, the spiritual reality of what Christ has done for us. He took the shame and he gave us his honor. And he is now, Christ, you are now exalted. And there will be a day when every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that you are the Lord. You are Yahweh to the glory of God the Father. There will be a day when every tongue will recognize you as God. Unfortunately, God, we know there are people who won't recognize you as Lord on this earth. And therefore, they will face rejection on that day. Lord, we don't want this. This is not what our heart is. We know this is not, this, this is why Christ came to this world. Christ came to redeem sinners. So Lord, I pray, save souls. Save maybe someone who's sitting here today. God, I pray their, their heart will turn in faith to Christ. And I pray, God, you'll let us reach this gospel, reach our community with this gospel. And I pray for us as Christians, as believers, we want to view ourselves how Christ views us, how we, I should say we're viewed by you, Lord, God, in Christ. So I pray that help us to live our lives worshiping you, recognizing Jesus, you took the shame for us. And then, God, may we also recognize the position that you have placed us in. We are your children. May we live according to that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.